0: I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Elena. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Today I'm speaking to Joanne Dallaire, a Cree Omoshkego with ancestry from Attawapiskat, Ontario. Joanne has been a strong voice for Indigenous peoples on the campus of Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. She is Ryerson's campus elder and has helped incorporate Indigenous knowledge and methodologies into the curriculum and overseen educational events. She's also been a mentor to Indigenous students. Joanne played a role for 30 years as a traditional counselor in Aboriginal Student Services at Ryerson University, but is now continuing as Ryerson's official campus elder. Welcome, Joanne. It's wonderful to have you on Grandmothers on the Move today.
1: Well, thank you so much for giving me a voice on such an important program.
0: Thank you. And I think we can start at the beginning of your work with Ryerson University in this role as counselor and educator with Aboriginal Student Services. How did that come to pass and what has it meant, do you think, for for the students and for you?
1: Well, it it came to pass um, from my... previous connection to the university as coming in, providing teachings and staff training. And then I was the elder on the Aboriginal Education Council. So then Monica was the director of the Aboriginal initiatives. She and I talked about this position of traditional council. So I went in and did it and we had so many hours and we were trying it out for a year and it just kept going People have started coming to me in the role of an elder. So I was doing that and I was going around the university and teaching or opening and closing. So I pretty much still do the opening and closing. I just passed on the counseling portion of it for a couple of reasons. One, I work way too much. My health kind of took a toll on me, you know, like I ignored the signs. And so I had to step back and ask myself, what do I really want to do here with my time? It's a time in my life where I have enough experience and I want to assist the people who are helping those on the front line or helping counselors. I want to teach to the people who teach. And it has meant a lot to me to be a part of the community. Uh, As soon as I came to Toronto, I was sending clients to Indigenous agencies, but I didn't make my connection until 1997, I believe. And I was already involved even before I came to Toronto. I came to Toronto in 1992. I was already in sweat lodge and doing ceremony. So doing this is kind of like that grandmother role that I have, that responsibility that I have, that. It's a part of who I am. I've always been a teacher. I've always been an observer. I've always been, you know, solution-focused. I love empowering people. So it just all fits. And I think there's much wisdom for us to garner from understanding the ways of knowing and being of our ancestors, whoever our ancestors are and whoever the nation of people we're talking about. I think it's just really important to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know you're a grandmother in your family and we'll talk about that a little later too, but you're clearly also bringing the ethos of grandmotherhood in its deepest sense to a lot of young people. And I can only imagine that when you first started at Ryerson in the late 90s, that things were certainly not what they are today. And I know you've had an extraordinary influence over the years, but that influence isn't just with Aboriginal and Indigenous students. That's changing and transforming an entire culture in the university. And I wonder if you can talk about that a bit.
1: Sure. You know, it's really a strange thing, and I guess I can sum it up like this. My life and my work have been parallel because they're one and the same. I'm doing the work that is me. And so, um, with that, I've found over the years that I bring with it my truth, and I've really become aware of how the truth resonates with everybody. We all know it when we hear it. And there's a level of connection and safety that people experience with that. And I always remind them that I'm not doing that. They're giving themselves permission to do that. So I love to empower people. So along the way, it has become just of my personality and just of the work that I did in going in and training the staff and getting on the, the Aboriginal Education Council was an important part for me because I was able to mingle with, you know, other people in the university who had positions in various departments. So, you know, I got to experience that and get to be known for that. And then I've done a ton of teaching through the Kairos blanket exercise. We used that for a couple of years and it was incredibly powerful. I've received an honorary doctorate from Ryerson for my life's work in the community. I've done big conferences with teaching the staff. I've trained the VPs. I really saw people just opening up. And at the beginning, it was kind of, there was a lot of resistance as it is. It's really hard to get people to change something that they didn't do and right. take over to someone else's history and, you know, try and make it better. So everybody's resistant to that naturally. But the good thing is, is that it's a university of educated people and education makes a big difference when we realize we do have a uh, choice. You know, I found that out coming from a core and being in with the university professionals, it's like, wow, I've come a long way, baby. And then with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and then the hiring of a VP for equity, diversity and inclusion, you know, kind of just all came tumbling in together at the same time. And then my role by then was, you know, pretty well known. I was doing a lot of speaking and a lot of teaching and going into faculties and teaching classes on traditional ways of knowing and being in the social work department in particular. And I felt at first, well, I still do, but I felt at first a great pressure of that responsibility because I knew this wasn't just me speaking for myself. This was, you know, me speaking and representing the university and the students and the faculty and the staff. So I've been amazed. And then I was asked to do the consult within the TRC, along with Denise O'Neill-Green. And we gathered all the information, asked all the questions, to you know, staff, faculty and students, you know, their input, what they saw was important around the TRC. That was a big report, which wound up having 55 recommendations for Ryerson to do. And then tons of committees said on that. And it's amazing the work that we're doing, hand over fist, you know, hiring of Aboriginal staff, making a real point of that, getting our traditional ways of knowing and being infused into programs and knowledge base, and then having programs set up do bridging of people who haven't been to university before.
0: A lot of this is timing, it sounds like, but also for that moment to be so potent, there has to be years of groundwork so that when that moment comes, there's a turning point. Exactly.
1: Yes, exactly. And so going in and working with the students was a great honor for me to do that. But like I said, when it came time for me to make a choice on where I wanted to expand that energy, it's time for me to step aside. There's lots of people who are indigenous social workers who and counselors that can step into that role. And I need to use my experience and expertise in a different way.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. And,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I want to explore with you a little bit what the meaning is of truth and reconciliation in the environment that you've been working in. What do you see needs to happen?
1: It keeps evolving. And at the current moment, I know to be true that first we must reconcile our own colonization, our own internal colonization. Whether we're full-blooded Indigenous or whether we're some other nation, whether we were part of the colonial problem just being a human being here living in Canada we need to look at a colonial construct and I became aware of that kind of second-handedly by watching Downton Abbey and realizing because I was raised by an English woman how much of my vocabulary and how much of my ways of doing things were British Wow! and I realized wow (laughs) yeah that's wow wow. That that was a big wow. And then, you know, well, how else could it be? Because I wasn't raised in my community, you know, and when I was raised, I was told that I wasn't French. So of course, I was deeply influenced by this English woman and this German man. So I had to reconcile that in a different level because I had reconciled my identity a long time ago. It was reconciling how I'd been colonized and how I was privileged and I didn't recognize my privilege. And then when I recognized and owned my own privilege, then I could clearly see the privilege of other people and the incredible imbalance. And so for me it's like it's not my place to go out there and educate people at a university. I said, you know, I said, you guys know how to do research. Right. Reconciliation is you reconciling and embracing our understanding what happened, not us continually trying to pound it into you look what your ancestors did to my ancestors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you people with treaties with us. Your government has treaties with us. You need to know that. I found out when I was doing a talk at Ryerson a few months ago, I was on a panel for newcomers, and I asked us during their swearing-in ceremony if they had to know anything about the Indigenous history of the country, and they knew nothing. And I said, well, you know, don't feel too bad. There's lots of Canadians who've been educated in this country that knew nothing. So it's that. It's the reconciling of, of course, me with my history, my exposure, my influence, my privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, to look at that, and I love the saying that Maya Angelou has. You know, we're simply doing what we were taught to do, and when we know better, we'll do better. And I really see that happening, and it has to happen in the human family of the world, and that's part of reconciling, reconciling our humanness, reconciling our limits, reconciling that we can't undo the past, that life doesn't come with an eraser. We have to learn from it and move forward into prosperity. And sometimes that's hard for us to do when we haven't really been hurt.
0: Right. And it brings the whole specter of truth as well, because there are real profound, painful and harmful truths that Absolutely. have to be faced because you can't reconcile until you've recognized the truths and internalized them.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think one of the things I've had to come to understand About my own education of, you know, because I always try to educate people who aren't Indigenous. I don't want to sing to the choir. I want to open the eyes of other people of why it's important to acknowledge who we are and our history. I really think it's important that people understand you need to know your history. You can't just be separate from it. You need to know the history of the land. And it's not here to make you feel bad. But, you know, you need to understand what that's put underneath. You know, if there's a government, our government right now can justify for decades over a hundred indigenous communities on boiled water advisories. Right. Then what else is it capable of doing? If it breaks promises and takes our land and... Does whatever it wants and ducks nuclear waste up north in the 40s and the 50s thinking it was going to kind of magically disperse and then not want to take responsibility for that. Really? Open your eyes here, because if they can justify doing it to one group of people, they can justify doing it to any other group of people as well.
0: Yeah, and that's such a fraught conversation right now, in particular, I think, because internationally, the Canadian government is being celebrated Mm -hmm. for forward-looking and thoughtful rhetoric, at least, around First Nations peoples and everything from land claims to leadership and reconciliation. And yet, there's a real struggle going on internally around the truth of that and what's really happening. I wonder how you think about that dichotomy.
1: Yeah, it is a real dichotomy, you know, because like I said earlier, it's really hard to get people who haven't done anything to us to take ownership for what was done because it's part of their past, their history, part of what they need to reconcile. That's a very difficult thing to do. And we can't do that through anger. You know, that doesn't work because as soon as you get angry, the person stops listening. They're just paying attention to your anger in the level of it. We have to do that through education. That doesn't mean we lie down and let people walk over it, but we do it through education. And sometimes that education is uncomfortable and inconvenient for both people, and sometimes it's welcome, and sometimes it isn't welcome, and that's just part of it. So we have to take responsibility for that individually as people, and we have to take responsibility for the fact that nothing can be undone, that both sides of this has to come to terms to living with it but it can't be lived with if it's not acknowledged. You know, I have this thing, what lives in denial lives for forever. And as soon as you bring it to the light, you take its power away. We need that recognition. We need the truth to be acknowledged. We are not naive enough to believe that we can change our history. We just want acknowledgement for what has been done and what still continues to be done to us and to our land, to the land of
0: Canada. At this very moment, with all of the shenanigans and scandal that's unfolding, and with former Attorney General, with Jody wilson Traybold's testimony, resignation—you have the sense of an enormous amount of work that's yet to be done, and unfortunately, words only take us so far.
1: But actions take us very far, and boy, did she show us!
0: Excuse me, everybody here. This
1: is how you do things. You know, I was raised in truth, integrity, and respect, and I can't do this. I'm not going to live this lie. I'm not going to work this lie. I'm leaving. You know, (laughs) change doesn't happen overnight, absolutely. But there's a reason why we're still not living in caves and why we're still not riding wagons with wooden wheels, because we keep evolving. And sometimes people don't like change. They have to be dragged into kicking and screaming. But the only thing that improves that is education. And this woman taught us a ton. And then the second woman, the other day resigned, taught us
0: even more. Right, because that was an important national lesson around being a good ally.
1: Absolutely. About standing beside the truth, about having integrity. You know, I mean, I've mean, just laughed when I heard that Trudeau had to cancel because it was going to be honoring women in politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hypocrisy that that rings up is deafening. That's one of the things about the truth. You know, the truth doesn't need to be aggressive. The truth doesn't need to be in your face. The truth doesn't need to be trying to trick you or hurt you. The truth is just the truth. It really can't be changed. And so you just stand in your truth. And you stand there, and if what is going on where you are is not who you are, then you get out of it. And you stand there, and you do what is right. We fell in love, once again, with what somebody told us. Yeah. You know, we fell in love with the words. We fell deeply in love. We were so desperate to have somebody have our backs that when this man, you know, did I mean, he's very charismatic. It's hard not to like him. His personality, his stage, blah da 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 da. But we gave him things that he had not earned, like a star blanket, like a war bonnet. He has to go through many
0: things to earn that war bonnet. That's a powerful way of thinking about it. Do you feel that a leader, as the leader of Canada, that you have to go through these trials because it's part of getting there, it's part of arriving? I'm yeah. not talking in particular about our Prime Minister, whether he'll arrive or not, but just that if any person is going to step into the role of leadership of Canada, that when you talk about earning that trust, earning that honour and the sort of knowing conferred upon him, by the Indigenous community, as you said, not in a naive way, but just the, the longing that goes with it, that actually it's unlikely that someone's going to step into the role of Prime Minister of Canada and have already arrived, that actually these trials, these trials are part of getting there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's why now we just
1: have to sit back and see who he is, see how he handles this. He has a whole different approach, which he, you know, he kind of flashed around like little ribbons. Yes, that's, that's all part of the campaigning. You know, he had this yoga kind of insight of spirituality, of connection. <laughs> he had, you know, he had that feminist, that understanding of balance of power. He had his father, who was a prime minister, good, bad, or indifferent, but he understood politics from the inside. And he had a mother who was very outgoing, didn't give a shit what anybody else thought, and had mental health issues that she's managing as anyone else would. So there was a huge opportunity of normalizing the kind of human condition. And I think he has another huge opportunity to step up and say, you know what? You're right. I mean, this is going to be the measure of the man and everybody in their lifetime comes face to face the truth of who they really
0: are. And I think that that's an incredibly challenging and interesting thing to think about in terms of leadership. And I want to ask you about that because you talked about it a little bit earlier on, but I'd love to hear more because I think you bring an enormous amount of wisdom to it and maybe even a philosophy to it, which is who you are and the measure of who you are as a person and your history, Joanne, and then also who you are as an elder, who you are as a leader. How have you lived that?
1: (sighs) Just a question that, you know, I still struggle with answering because, first of all, I don't like titles. I think they're divisionary. You know, it puts me above other people to say I'm an elder. It's more accurate to say I'm a grandmother. You know, that's who I am. And so therefore, I've garnered some wisdom. I'm not an elder. I'm not over anyone. And I believe in the circle, the power of the circle. No one in front, no one behind, no one above, no one below. And everybody comes to the circle of life with something of equal value. And it could be that you clean the halls the best way anybody else can, because if you walk into a building, how the building looks is the first impression. So we should never minimize anything. But back to your question, I don't think there is a separation from me being an elder and me being who I am. As a counselor, there was no separation from me, as who I am as a woman and who I was as a counselor, other than I learned some tricks of the trade, shall we say. I learned how to be a better counselor. But I was always a counselor. I was always the one that people came to, to talk things over. Not that I dispensed advice all the time, but sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. And oftentimes I said, God, I'm so lucky to get paid to be who I am. So... I had asked one of my elders one time, I said, how do people become elders? And she said to me, I don't know, how did you become an elder? I said, I'm not an elder. She said, you most certainly are. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. And I said, well, what makes an elder? She said, the people come to you and you empower them. But see, I don't see that as something separate. I've just always seen it as something that I've had to do for myself and that I always believed was possible and it was just a part of me. So, you know, I love to talk. You know, I love to talk to people who like different ideas coming, but there's not a separation. And dealing with it sometimes, you know, I've had people challenge me and I don't take it personally. You know, I got a used Buick one time and I was holed up in front of an agency to just run in and pick up something. And there was a bunch of staff standing outside having a smoke. And when I came back out and I got in and one of them said, must be nice. Uh, my back immediately bristled and then I thought wait a minute and then I just said yeah you know what it is nice I said I've worked my ass off to get here and it is nice have a good day I remember that thinking I was raised to believe that anybody with money that they were you know so far removed from the average working guy that there was almost a dismissal of them and I didn't understand that until after my third <laughs> bankruptcy and my answer said to me what's going on here it was you and money and it was because i I was trying to become something I'd been taught to hate. So I realized the power of our past. And through my own evolution, through my own seeing my change, through my own going from hate and bigotry and, you know, to make fun of Native people was wrong, <laughs> and particularly because I was one. But, you know, denied that heritage. It's all about the journey. It's, the Cherokee Morning Song reminds us, I love singing that song when I go and do openings and I give this teaching. The Cherokee morning song reminds us that the sun rises in the east every day, that tomorrow is in our history. It's nothing we can do. To affect it, we can only learn from it. And that tomorrow remains our yesterday and tomorrow remains undecided yet because we don't know what it's going to bring or how we're going to react to it. So our power lies in the now. Yeah, isn't that nice? You know, there was a lot of time I sat on the pity pot based in anger and saying, you know, why me? Why did I have to go through all of this? And a very wise counselor said to me, why not you? What made you think you were going to be the only person that was going to avoid being lied to, tricked, abused, treated badly. And it was just like, oh, (laughs) it normalized the whole process of recovery. You know, yes, you have to give voice to that victim because she's been violent for so long, but you don't want to live there. In order to change, we have to take responsibility for the impact of our victimization on her life.
0: I'm thinking about the role of grandmothers. And but I like the way you started, where you said, you know, you think of yourself more of a grandmother. And I was reading about the Council of 13 Indigenous Grandmothers. Mm-hmm. And I've been really wanting to speak to them because they use almost interchangeably the word of grandmother and elder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't something that as a grandmother, you know, the next level up is elder. Yeah. And and I wonder for you, what did it mean to become a grandmother with Zachary, your 11 year old grandson now when he was born? And what did it touch in you in your own history and your own childhood? Perfect.
1: Perfect. That's, you know, I use reference to a lot of my teachings about my family and kind of what that's been like. But one of my first observings was when my daughter and I decided to move in together because she was going to have a child on her own. And she you know, done all her work and she did a year worth of ceremony before she tried the first fertilization and boom, she caught right away. And So I realized my excitement and I realized that I was something I had never known. I didn't really have an idea how to be a grandmother because we never had a grandmother. I thought that was interesting. And then I was really excited because I was going to be able to be a part of Zachary's life and bring him into the world in ceremony. And, but I forgot about when we moved in together, there's this thing, you know, when you start another hoop on something, you go back to where you were and then you start again. Well, my daughter and I went back to when she was 18. (laughs) So the first six six months of us living together was, you cannot kill your daughter. You cannot kill your daughter. We had to work through a lot of stuff that she hadn't worked through. And one of the things that, and this little story behind this—that's why I'm planning this evening out. Um, she said to me, she, "I said, I don't understand. What you're, you're such a hypocrite." I said, "How am I a hypocrite to you?" She said, "Well, you're always saying one thing and doing the other." And I said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "I remember one time when I was a kid, I'd asked you if I could have some ice cream before bed, and you said no. And then I heard you and Dad eating ice cream later." And I looked at her. <laughs> I'm thinking, are you serious? But then I realized there's a whole lot of other things attached to that of the course, but I thought, wow. <laughs> so I said, okay, you need to learn to forgive, let go, something. But anyways, we got around that. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it was really a tremendous honor to sing and drum and you know prepare and get the house ready and be ready there for Zach. Zachary was yanked out of her and put under this little McDonald's French fry light, and I got to go over and cut off the extra piece of his umbilical cord and look at this little kid whose face was all pushed in. And I called him by a spirit name, and he opened his little black eyes, and I said, okay, we've had lots of lives together. You need to remember this time, I'm in control, and then I kind <laughs> of chuckled. And from that moment on, we've had this incredible connection. And It was really wonderful to be able to brag about that, to come home. I took pictures and, of course, I blew them up and put a picture on the door because everybody on the floor wanted to know when the baby was coming. And I had a blog that ran for five years of him. I heard him say, first of all, I realized that kids didn't understand their feelings that we had to identify them for them. Well, nobody sure as hell identified mine for me. Mm -hmm. And by the time I And on my road of discovery and recovery of being in abusive relationships, my own daughter was 11 years old, so she wasn't raised to identify them either. So, you know, I I would say to Zachary, oh, you look angry or you look frustrated. Oh, you're really happy. And, you know, I would just explain the different emotions. One day, we're walking in Walmart and I don't like crowds at the best. And I don't like being around a bunch of strangers at best. And so all of a sudden, I'm starting to feel a little bit bristly, right? And behind me is my daughter with my grandson in their cart, and I've got my own cart. And I hear this little voice say to me, come." I said, yes, honey, you need an attitude adjustment.
2: (laughs) 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 Oh, my God.
1: Tammy and I started laughing, and I thought, wow, I would have never been able to say that, even at that age. You know, there would have been no challenging the people (laughs) at racing. And so, you know, that began to make me look at how quickly things can move from being in totally engulfed in abuse and denial of so many things, a denial of self into, you know, this healthy little boy, Caesar salad over French fries, you know, just raised so differently. He had so many more privileges and advantages than I had or Tammy had. And that's what you do. You improve the quality of your children's lives. And so one day we were watching a TV show and, I said, wow, if that had happened to me when I was a kid, I would have got a beating. And he looked at me and he said, what's a beating called? Wow. Wow. That's what I thought. Wow. This kid doesn't even know what that means. Holy crap. And I looked at my daughter and we kind of, you know, had this big smile. And and I said, well, it's when somebody loses their temper and, and hurts somebody else by beating them. Oh, why would people do that? And I said, well, I don't know why lots of people do the things that they do. Don't worry about that. Just worry about why you do Wow. And then when we moved to Gatineau, he was four and a half, and we were living in a two-story place. And every night, I'd go upstairs and go to bed. By the time I got to the top of the stairs, I was having a panic attack, a full-blown panic attack. And my daughter would have to kind of calm me down on it from it. And this was happening for about three weeks in a row. I'm a slow learner. So <laughs> I phoned my, my, my counselor, and I said, I don't know what's going on. You know, And I explained to her, and she said, OK, how old is Zachary right now? And I said, he's four and a half. She said, where were you when you were four and a half? And I saw myself walking upstairs to my bedroom being terrified because uh, that's where the abuse happened, it was uh, mainly at night, right? right? And then it was like, as soon as I had that knowledge, that awareness, it went away. The power of it was gone. And so that's where I kind of got that, you know, that feeling of we need to acknowledge these feelings. We don't need to live in them. We don't need to re-traumatize ourselves by, pulling them apart and looking at them again. We need to understand how our past is influencing us now, and is that what we want? So that's what I was able to do with him. I was able to watch my daughter really grow. It's one of the things I realized my daughter had was she never had to test herself. Like, I had to learn to do everything. I had to learn to cook and I made all our clothes. And my daughter never had to do any of that because I made sure she never had to do any of that. So when we went to Gatineau, I said, I'm not going to do anything. I said, I'll clean up after myself and I'll take some chores, but you have to do this. So three and a half years later, when we were leaving, I said, so what did you learn about yourself here? She said that I can handle anything. That was so powerful. And she thanked me for not saying anything. I said, oh, you didn't see the blood running down the sides of my mouth from me biting my tongue? (laughs) And my grandson would look at me sometimes and say, Gokum, oh, do we have to eat this? <laughs> I want to share one more thing with you because I started off with this. And I, this is a story I love to share. Tammy knows I share this. Remember when I said, she said, I'm such a hypocrite. Right. So, and so Zachary was about three and she comes back from the store and she said, I got us a treat for later. She said, it's just for you and I. And my little ding, 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 Bells went off in my head. A hot here comes a teachable moment. Zachary's in bed and sleep and we're watching TV and go get the treat. And we're sitting there. I can't even remember what it was. And so we're eating and I look at her and I said, I hope he doesn't wake up. And she said, why? I said, well, if he finds us eating this, he's going to hold a grudge against you. That's going to last for 30 seconds. <laughs> 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 she couldn't help, but she started laughing, right? <laughs> you know, it really helps with normalizing life, you know, for me, it, it gave me experiences I never had. Like I said, I had no grandparents. I didn't grow up with my mother. Tammy grew up with me. We had an interesting dynamic. though so I'm an only child. She's an only child. He's an only child. So we have three very large, self-serving egos in the house.
0: And that's a really interesting thing to think about, being a grandmother- for the first time without the experience of your own grandmother? Well, that's
1: part of our community's issue, eh? That's what mm-hmm. residential thing for a lot of us was take that ability to have the influence of grandparents or parents on our life to develop those interpersonal relationship skills, to learn how to share, to learn how to, to be happy. All of those things that we lost out on is a huge issue for a lot of our people. But it's also a huge issue for a lot of people who are separated from their birth mothers for other reasons like the 60 scoop for one thing, but certainly for other reasons as well. You know, when you don't have the influence of your family and your life, you are always trying to fill that space of, who
0: am I? You've talked about speaking to other elders and speaking to counselors and guides of your own. Do you have a community of other grandmothers for yourself?
1: It's a very interesting thing because I look at that often. I don't. And one of the things I had to come to terms with about my personality is I'm an extroverted introvert. You know, I can go up and talk to a thousand people on a stage. That doesn't bother me. I can sing a song on the stage. It doesn't bother me. I can, you know, do this. It doesn't bother me. I love it. But sit me in a room full of strangers or ask me to go to a house party or, you know, (laughs) I hate that. I've always recognized that I had problems with it and I used to force myself to do it. And then I realized, you know, given my background, I don't really trust people. So I haven't really invested a lot in friendships. I have an informal group of people that when I'm in front of them, I can share and talk and connect. But it's not something I reach out to do.
0: I really understand the extrovert, introvert. I actually share it. But you actually fill that role for a lot of people. Absolutely. Which is, which is, like, which is a, f- a different kind of community.
1: Mm-hmm. I am in that role. And it is strange when I hear community members call me grandmother. It kind of drives it home in a different way. And nobody calls me grandmother because my grandson calls me Kokum. Right. Which is grandmother, right? So when people call me grandmother, it, it resonates with me. And it's comforting. And it reminds me of my responsibility. I think it's a really good cue. You know, like, okay, pay attention to what you're saying. And I work a lot with teachers, and I'm always saying to teachers, you know, you're a seed planter. And that was taught to me a long time ago by one of my bosses in Peterborough in an alternative school. I said, it's so frustrating. We never know whether these kids are going to get it. And he said, we were just seed planters. So plant the best seeds you can. Be the best seed planter you can be.
0: And then just let it go. And that was such a powerful teaching I just love this conversation. I could speak to you for hours <laughs> but I know I know that would be a little unfair. Well, I have a question to ask and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. But since you mentioned it, I just want to hear that Cherokee song. Okay, sure. Not very long. Winday ho
2: Winday ho oh, oh, ho oh, oh, ho ho hey ho oh, hey oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. ho ya when they are ho so when they are home. when they are when they are ho 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 hey ho hey ho ya when they are ho when they are when they are when they are ho, oh 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 hey oh hey oh yeah yeah when they are oh when they are oh when they are when they are oh 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 hey oh hey oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was laughing through
1: that because my dog loves it when I sing. And she's always <laughs> gonna put her ear to my mouth and lick my face at the same time. I'm having to deal with her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> kind of understand the impulse. Thank you. That was a real gift. Well, I, you know, I just feel like there's hope for the world with you in it, Joanne. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
1: Remember this, what you see in me, you carry yourself. Otherwise, you couldn't recognize.
0: I will absolutely carry that. Thank you so, so much for for this conversation and for all that you do.
1: Well, thank you very much. And the same right back to you. Keep up the good work. We need you.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.